Hi, it's Jamie, progressive number one, number two employee. Leave a message at the... Hi, Jamie, it's you, Jamie. Don't be alarmed, but I think there's a guy following you. Maybe we should get that guard dog we talked about? Nothing too scary, maybe like a Bichon with an attitude? You know, Progressive's collision insurance covers injured dogs and cats at no extra cost, so... Wait, the guy stood up when I stood up. He's on the phone. He's looking right at me. Oh, wait, it's just my reflection. Don't tell anyone about this. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Pet coverage not available in New Hampshire and North Carolina. You are Locked On the NBA, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. It is Locked On NBA. I'm David Locke, host of Locked On NBA, radio voice of the Utah Jazz, and founder of the Locked On Podcast Network, a very, very special edition Locked On NBA head coach of the Utah Jazz, Quinn Snyder, opens up on who he is, where his drive came from very early in his career. He references back about the Missouri situation a little bit with some interesting comments about college basketball and where it is, what drives him, what takes him. Why did he walk out of an NBA training camp at one point in his career? We learn an awful lot about the mastermind behind the Utah Jazz, one of the brightest men I have ever uh, been around. This is Locked on NBA, Locked on NBA is part of the Locked On Podcast Network. For those of you who have not caught aboard of this or caught the word of this, around the NBA, there is a podcast for your favorite team, Locked On, whomever. Every day, 15 to 22 minutes out there for you, Monday through Friday. Some are a little longer, giving you the inside scoop on your team. So make sure you have subscribed to your team's favorite your favorite NBA teams podcast uh, on the way. Today's show brought to you by SeatGeek. I'll mention that in a minute. I want to say one thing about this this show. One, uh, I feel very, very fortunate to have had Quinn do this. Uh, I, I didn't know he would open up. This is not something he usually does. He's been reluctant to do it. Uh, so I, I'm very flattered that he did it. I re-listened to the interview, and I thought I missed – one segment where I let down a little bit, and that was when he talked about his wife, Amy. He really came alive. Amy's an incredible woman. She uh, has her doctorate from Texas, I think, in educational disability and behavioral disorders. Um, she's she's really an incredible woman. And when I went back and listened to the interview again, he lights up about her. And I probably should have delved more into who Amy is, what Amy does for him, how important Amy is to him. So that's the only one I would say that I think I might have, uh, I apologize to you. I don't know if I'll get another chance on that one. So that's my regret on this interview. Otherwise, I couldn't be more thankful to Quinn for taking the time, opening up like he did, sharing his thoughts. Uh, it's unusual for Quinn to do this, and uh, Coach Snyder doesn't usually take this kind of time. So uh, a, a very interesting look into one of the brightest NBA minds who's had an interesting life. Uh, and I hope you really enjoy it. As I mentioned, today's show is brought to you by SeatGeek. If you use the promo code LOCKED, they will send you $20 back as a rebate after your first purchase. So why would you use SeatGeek? Though? One, it's right on your phone. It's easy to use. The second thing about SeatGeek is they're compiling all of the different ticket places 
into one place for you so you don't have to search multiple places. It's such a great concept. It's technology making it easier. And then the other problem whenever you're buying seats is I don't know the arena. I'm on the road. What am I going to find? Where's the best place to sit? What's the best ticket? SeatGeek goes and breaks down for you with their ticket score which tickets are the best for you and which ones are the best prices and the best value with their ticket score. So first, they're compiling everything so you can go to one place. Second, they're taking care of that. And third, it's secure. And it goes right to your mobile phone. So go download the SeatGeek app right now. Go to the settings tab and go hit right over there, uh, settings, and then it says promo code, enter in locked right away. Enter in locked, and then when you make your first purchase with SeatGeek, you will end up with a $20 rebate from SeatGeek. So download the app now and use the promo code locked. Here is the head coach of the Utah Jazz, the three-time Final Four representative while being the point guard for Duke, the McDonald's All-American out of Mercer Island, Washington, the former head coach at Missouri who then went to L.A. Laker or went to the D-League to restart his career as a coach and learn the pro game through the Spurs, then went to the Lakers, went to Moscow for a year, went to Atlanta before becoming the head coach of the Utah Jazz. A man who was on the quest for knowledge at all times, who maybe is on a search for greatness, though he will disagree with that. It is the Utah Jazz head coach, Quinn Snyder, in this profile interview on Locked on NBA. So Coach Quinn Snyder joins us in, in- just first off, this has been kind of a crazy three years for you, the injuries and everything else, and your team's really, you know, it just feels like I, I see, I go to practice, I, I see everything you're putting together out on the floor right now. How does it feel from a basketball standpoint for you right now? Well, you know, you mentioned, you know, the, some of the, the challenges we've had and the adversity that, that accompanies not being um, completely healthy. Um, but it, it's also... It's also a challenge, and um, and that's the way that that I've tried to to approach it, and it's the way that we've asked our team to approach it. And uh, I think the the further we move forward, um, the more more we realize, and I think the more our players realize that some of the things that we've tried to do, as far as building habits and building a system and understanding how to play. And how we want to play, and being, you know, obviously unselfish, and you know, being committed to just competing no matter what. Um, we've tried not to to talk about those things as much as just to do them, and and then you know, watch each other do them, and 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 uh, and judge ourselves that way. And I, I'd like to think that what's happened is that started to become more and more a part of our DNA, and. You, you you feel that when you watch the group perform and compete and you know what what what's happened a little bit you know I think and I hope is that you know our guys have started to transcend um, you know their judgment of themselves in an individual game and they've started to to see themselves more you know where are we going as a team what can we do and and where are we on that path? And, and are we better today than we were a month ago? And um, I think when we see things that way with a, a larger horizon and continue to compete um, and do those things on a, on a daily basis, that that's when you get a chance for significant growth. And I, I, I think that's where where we are. We've, we've grown. And you can't grow unless things are hard sometimes. And so some of that discomfort and, 
some of the youth that you know we've we, you and I have talked about over the last couple of years how young we've been and how guys have missed games and all those things I think have hardened us a little bit and hopefully made us even more committed to the things that we're talking about and it's one thing to talk about it's another thing to live it and uh, I think we're we're living it more consistently. There's a great book written about Michael Jordan's time in Washington a few years ago. I think it was Michael Lay. He wrote it. And what was great about it, he, wrote, he talked about the tube, that, that everyone lives in the tube. You, mm. you, you go from the bus to the hotel to the arena and then back to the bus and back to the hotel and you're in the tube. And there's almost 30 individual tubes. Mm-hmm. How, when you're inside your own tube, do you judge where you are compared to the rest of the league? Well, that's a good point. Uh, I think you have to be first and foremost. You have you have to be honest with yourself, and uh, you're not gonna, you know, that judgment. If you're not honest with yourself, is is gonna be you're gonna misjudge, and that's probably the danger. In that, if you're not honest about where you are and where your tube is <laughs> relative to other teams in the league, um, you're not gonna get a good barometer. And when you do that, you're not gonna be able to you know, to make progress, but it's, uh, I guess one of the things, you know, just to use your tube analogy is that I think the tube has to be transparent and to the extent that you're able to clearly, you know, look outside as well, um, you get a better gauge of where you are and you, you, you can't be, you know, you, you can't be naive to think that, you know, you've, arrived and and uh, all that has to happen is you play a bad game and you figure that out pretty quick and you know that's going to happen but um it it's hard to get a gauge i think competition obviously gives you that um but i don't i don't want us to kind of make a definitive um statement about where we are i'd rather that be um something that's ongoing and i think again if if you can continue to do that and um, that's that's where you have the greatest probability of success because um, when you look outside and, and you see those other teams, um, it should it should be sobering on some level and you know like we're going to play Golden State and, and that that's the reality and you feel the first six minutes of the game and they're flying around and making shots and it's like okay, you know we got a ways to go, and then you have a game like the other night at Memphis where the last six minutes of the game you're, you you really dig in and. May not be pretty, but you figure out a way to to grind against a team that's known for grinding, and um, you know that's the same kind of transparency that that um, gives you different um, different conclusions about who you are, but equally, I think both important. So as the Jazz continue to play well, there's this phenomenon that. Now I walk into every gym and people want to know who you are. <laughs> and I know how much I, I actually they was, want to know who you are. Huh? No, they want to know who you are. Um, I actually was laughing. I was going through my notes as knowing quickly as I knew we were going to hold this conversation. And one of the first times I ever approached you and said, hey, you know, I think they want to know who you are. You said, no, they want me to win. <laughs> that hasn't changed. <laughs> is that your feeling is that you would always rather have your record stand than your personality or who you are? As a- well, it depends. It depends in what context. You know, I think when you win, it, it generates interest and that's when people want to know more about who you are. So um, if, if, if that's out there, you know, to the extent that it's a reflection on what our players are doing on the court, um, you know, that's a welcome, I won't call it a problem, but um, I've been through it before on some level, and, and I know the, 
the pitfalls that, that accompany th- th- those things. And um, we live a very public life. And everything we do um, as a coach, as, as players, as a team, um, is going to be evaluated. And it's evaluated in a very specific kind of crucible. And the challenge is whether you're winning or losing to not let all of that define you because you largely get you, you get a you get the wrong read either you you're not winning and you're a bad coach and a bad person hopefully not the latter but that sometimes comes together you know it's very difficult to separate out the professional and the personal and i think that's that's the nature of the beast. That's what makes the job challenging on, on, on some level personally. And then the same token is true. You, when you win, suddenly, you know, you're, you're really, really good and, and, uh, you've got the same challenges and weaknesses that you did when you weren't winning. Just sometimes the ball goes in. And, um, I think it's a challenge to not define yourself that way. So when I get asked, now you can get mad at me afterwards. Why do you tell those? I tell two stories. Okay. It's better if you tell them today than if I tell them. All right. The first story goes back to Indiana when you were in camp. Okay. And what is the story about you basically, from what I've read, are on the verge of making the Pacers? Mm-hmm. And what do you decide? Well, it, it, there's there's got to be a little background there because it, it, that was basically – you know, the, the background is what, what kind of got me to the point where um, I made a decision that I wanted to go another direction um, with my professional life, I guess, for lack of a better description. But, you know, I'd had a, a good career at Duke. We, you know, won a lot of games and played in some Final Fours and uh, played with some great players and, you know, and had had, you know, success playing basketball and it had given me opportunities that I never thought that I'd have. Um, one of them was that experience itself. Over a period of time, I think some of it had to do with what we talked about before. I mean, it really did define me on a lot of levels. And with that, you know, I hate to say I was burned out at 22, but um I had been so committed from such a, you know, I knew when I was 13, I was going to, I wanted to get a college scholarship and that was the way I was going to go to college. I couldn't afford to, you know, like a lot of people, right? Pick up a, certainly not a Duke tuition. And, uh, so I worked at it. I mean, I got up early and got to school at 6:30 and played for an hour and a half before class started and was out in the, you know, you know how it rains in Seattle. So, um, you know, I had the old transistor radio playing whatever it was playing on KJR Seattle and was, you know, practicing and continued to do that and, and always had some other interests, but they were subjugated to, to kind of that, you know, career path. And for, for a 19, 20, 20-year-old kid to, to, to truly kind of feel like you're on a career path and to feel like what you're doing was a professional endeavor, that's where I got to Um at the end of, you know, my time at Duke. And at the same time, you know, you're looking at this opportunity and everybody that you talk to is like, wow, what an idyllic life, you know, what a cool thing. It's similar to sometimes what happens to our guys now. Um, And it's not always, uh, there's so many things about it that were fabulous, but there's also more to life. You know, there's more going on. And I hit a point where I just, wasn't sure I'd wanted to keep working that hard. 
wasn't sure that I felt that committed to continue to play basketball. It wasn't something that I was enjoying doing, frankly, you know, and, and I had plenty of satisfaction and enjoyment, you know, my senior year, we played in the final four again. I was the team captain, had a good year, played injured through most of the year, which was kind of frustrating because um, I didn't think I was playing as well as I could and whatever, you know, opportunities lay beyond. And th th that's always the, you know, that's the next step for a college player is to play in the NBA. And at that point, I remember uh, there was a lot of components to this. So I remember the 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 minimum salary which if i had made the team I, that that was me right i think it was like one hundred and twenty thousand dollars, which you know in today's terms guys look back and well it's not very much that's you know guys are going to be making that in the d league soon um but it, it it that in and of itself wasn't motivation for me that that and it, it may not have been if it was more money um but that in and of itself you know, kind of a financial kicker to, you know, that was more money than I was going to make doing anything else out of college. But it wasn't something that was enticing enough for me from that standpoint to continue playing. Well, that, that, that's fine. Um, but if there were other things that were, you know, were captivating and that wanted you to continue that, 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 um, to, to continue to be as committed as I think I would have been and regardless of, the situation that was how I was going about it, and uh, I just got to a point where there was I felt like there was more there i didn 't know what it was, um, but i 'd always wanted to go to grad school. Um, I really enjoyed being a student, and i wasn 't a student when I was an undergrad i was I was a professional athlete going to college is really what it amounted to um, just the amount of time and, and not just the time but the emotional investment more than anything. And kind of daily defining yourself. And there was part of me that just wasn't connected to that. And at the same time, here's this dream that, that I had had from the time that I was young. And, and uh, you know, are you going to really stop pursuing it? And I remember calling my dad and telling him I wasn't sure I wanted to keep playing. And, you know, he, he was, what are you talking about? You know, that he's like, well, I don't. Oh, you know, I don't really know that I like it anymore. He said, well, I don't like my job all the time either. <laughs> so that was like, okay, maybe that's true. But I was 22, you know, I was 21. I didn't want to go there yet. You know, we, I didn't want to sweat through the things I didn't like about my job. I wanted to look for something that maybe I liked or liked more or explore that. But at the same time, you know, I really didn't, I didn't want to feel like I was quitting, you know. And so I decided to go to uh training camp and uh went to indiana and and played well and, and got to a point where as you said I, I think i played really well um and i got i got back to the hotel that night and i was there was a guy that he was swedish i don't even remember his name and we were we were in the same room in the hotel right it was there you know my double bed his double bed we were roommates you know in training camp and I just was looking at the ceiling going, what am I doing? I don't really want to do this. And uh, at the time, um, the director of pro player personnel is a guy named George Irvin, who had been the coach there previously, too, had coached in Detroit and was a close friend of mine from Seattle. He played at the University of Washington, and um, I knew his niece growing up, Karen Campy. Um, so I had known him. I you know, hung out with him on the 4th of July and, Dave Twardzik, who played with the Blazers, came up and 
we screwed around and he was someone I really, really admired. It was one of the reasons that I'd gone to Indiana and Donnie Walsh was the GM and I think the head coach was Dick Forsace, although I don't really. Yes. Okay. So I called George and I was like, man, I'm, can you come get me? And he's like, what are you talking about? So I just, I don't, I don't, this isn't me. I don't want to do it anymore. He's like, are you serious? It was like, I don't know. You know, I didn't ask him to, I, yeah, it didn't make sense to me. And he came and picked me up and, uh, I knew his family well. I was, so I just wanted to get out of the hotel and, uh, took me back to his house and set me up there and, you know, the couch or the guest room or whatever. And I remember playing ping pong the next day with, with his two kids, with, uh, Cho Jamie and Toby. And, uh, enjoying playing ping pong and I'd applied to law school and I kind of had a plan in the back of my mind and I think the fact that I'd played well and that I felt like that was something I could do if I wanted to um, gave me the peace of mind that I could stop playing and I was doing it for the right reasons that I wasn't necessarily afraid to fail that it wasn't something I wanted to grind on uh, if I didn't make the NBA to go to the CBA and kind of keep working through all that, it just was, it had just run its course. And, uh, you know, it's 10 years of my life that were that devoted and that committed in a very real way. And uh, I didn't want to do it anymore. So I went back to school. Looking at the next, wow, we now have 30 years of your life. Yeah. There's been a parallel in everything you've done, I think, that's this quest for greatness. I don't know if that's mm -hmm. the frame or I think almost the word greatness is silver mm -hmm. was there no script for greatness there is that do you think in retrospect what you looked back and you realized wow you're you're being a real journalist now huh the uh i don't know i wouldn't call it greatness i i think the word quest is applicable in that it was a little more about self-discovery and um you know and, and kind of finding uh, passion for luck you know just being immersed in something and being committed to something in and of itself that you, you know, just connected with, that you enjoy, that you love to do. And I'd had that, and it really made sense to me, and I liked it. And then I didn't have it anymore, and I, I wanted it again. And I was confident enough in the fact that I could do some other things that in some ways I wasn't afraid to, to, to leave it behind. And... um I remember kidding with a few of my buddies just saying, hey, you know, anybody can stick with something. It takes a real man to quit. <laughs> That's a great point. Yeah, but I haven't, I haven't, I don't know that I've looked at, you know, the the thread you're talking about is, as a quest for greatness as much as it almost the quest for peace. If that sounds a little bit um, existential, it's actually true. What is the quest for peace? Just being happy, you know, feeling content with what you're doing and, you know, having your life kind of makes sense. And, uh, you know, that there's a lot of things, as we know, that contribute to that um, on a personal level, your family, your, you know, your wife. I've got a, an unbelievable girl that I'm married to that I'm so, I mean, I'm just ecstatic about that. I'd probably be happy doing about anything with that component, that box, and having a family. But it's... uh you know that if you don't have that professionally, in for me personally, because I, I'm aware of it, I think it becomes much more difficult to have it other places as well. There's an alignment there for me that is important. You know, you don't 
like to talk about your family much or keep them in their own little capsule. But I did do a little investigative reporting here since you're calling me a journalist. <laughs> so I've heard a rumor mm-hmm. that with your kids, you tell the greatest good night stories of all time <laughs> and that possibly you are these made up or what, what's the story on these? I'm not sure that you, I don't know where you're getting your information, but well, it's probably the, pretty uh, it wasn't one of your children. So it's yeah. probably pretty obvious. <laughs> well, sometimes we all need to let our imagination go. Right. And, uh, <laughs> it's probably a good outlet, but yeah, it's, a, there's a creative component there to, to bedtime stories that, that are, uh, that are fun. See, you're even making the greatest bedtime stories of all time. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know about that, but I know that, um, you know, it's fun to expose your kids to to thoughts and ideas and try to paint pictures that that are some way uh, interesting to them and interesting to me too. My second story I tell okay. is that the NCA has this system where they allow for graduate assistance, mm-hmm. which I rudely to the NCA refer to as the last chance to screw an athlete yeah. because they can go pay you absolutely nothing mm-hmm. to go be an assistant coach while you're supposed to be taking classes. And almost every single grad assistant in the world has taken like their last few communications classes or something and basically work for free. Mm-hmm. You decide to go get a JD and an MBA while being a grad assistant to Mike Krzyzewski. Now that is just well beyond anything that most people have ever done. Well, the, the, the irony of that, um, it's one of the reasons, I mean, I loved going to school at Duke. I loved the community. Um, the, the friends that I had even there in Durham that weren't necessarily that had gone to school there that prof- it just it fit for me um, but I, I wasn't sure that I wanted to go to grad school there one of the primary reasons I did is I frankly I thought um, you know I wanted to maybe explore other stuff and I had applied to some other schools and had an opportunity to go elsewhere but um, the, the idea of being I wanted to get it paid for <laughs> to be quite honest with you and there was a graduate assistant program. The, the tuition at law school was not insignificant. And Jay Billis was there my first year, and he was finishing that up. So I knew when he had finished that Coach K had told me that that could be my spot, and I'd, you know, I'd get law school paid for. So I borrowed the money the first year, knowing that I was going to be able to, to get that tuition and all that taken care of. And then they changed the rule. So um, my second year... Uh, in law school uh, was not going to be paid for. It's one of the, I applied to business school. Part of the way, you know, one more year, what's it, you know, I can, I can handle that. Um, and I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And, and all those experiences, I think, were, were really important to that process. But I didn't really want to coach, you know. It just was a comfortable, you know, it was better than 10 and bar and better than borrowing money. And I ended up borrowing a lot of money and tending bar while I was in school because um, it didn't work out where I got it paid for. But the, the irony of that is I had no intention of coaching. I was moving away from that, um, so didn't have the you know. And Coach K knew this. I don't know that I'd ruled it out, but I had no desire at that point in my life to to be immersed in basketball on that level. And my first year I wasn't because I didn't have that job. Um, so on my first year in law school, I was purely a student, which was one of the best years um, that I can remember. I loved it and uh, just got to throw myself into something else. And But in the end, I think being around it, um, even though I, you know, the, there were a lot of student loans that 
that I took out to pay for it, I still did it. Um, so I, 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 I was still, you know, interested in, in being a part of that group and I missed it. And that's kind of, in the end, without even knowing it, that became uh, something I ended up wanting to do. And I'm, I'm glad that um, I was near enough to it to transition back to it because I ended up, after being away from playing, I think one of the things I wanted to, I felt like I could help people, help players, and uh, maybe get to a place that, you know, they really enjoyed it and, and, and wanted to do it and that all those things that, that coaching involves. You know, I saw from a different standpoint than, than I did as a player and just the creative process that was involved in it and ended up kind of getting pulled back into it. It's funny, on my notes over here, I actually have written down, why basketball? Like, yeah. I, I do. I watch you coach every now and then. Maybe it's the way you're describing how you're going to run something off a pick and roll, but it's just at a level where I wonder to myself, like, why basketball for this guy? Well, I, I think the, the, the kind of the thin red line is, you know, the, the challenge of leadership which and, and really the creative process. I think, you know, coaching and leading is about molding a group and trying to see how things fit together and, you know, how different people can help each other be better and to be a part, um, you know, of a, of a team is a really unique thing. I mean, I think that's what, you know, whether it's artistic or it's business or whatever the case is, when you're connected to a group or to, to a creative act, that's something that's unique and, and you know, very in and of itself, it, 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 uh, by definition. And that's something that always, you know, I found captivated me that process because it is so different all the time. Every season's different. Every game's different. It's, it, it holds my concentration and, and it's incredibly challenging. And part of it, I, I think through the creative process, for me personally, that's when those challenges, that adversity, um, competition, that's when you find out the most about yourself. And it challenges you in ways that, that are that are difficult. I want to go back to something you said earlier. It wasn't in my notes, but you made a comment. And I'm, I don't know if I'm asking this question as the, mm -hmm. as the 13-year-old kid that was in the rain shooting hoops or whether I'm asking you this as the parent of four now. What makes a kid? Five. Five, sorry. <laughs> my bad. The last one. Yeah. Uh, what makes a kid at 13 years old go on a career path, as you called it? Go out and sit there with KJR, 95.7 FM, blaring the Who and Jimi Hendrix and whoever else they were playing in their classic rocks days. Garfield High School, right? right? Right, and shoot hoops for an hour and a half before going to school. Like, what, what makes a 13, 14-year-old kid do that? Well, yeah, I mean, you... It's not like some, um, you know, there's choices involved in that, but it's also just a function of kind of your, even at a young age, kind of what your, what your life looks like and what you're doing. And um, there certainly was a, an ambition to, to it that um, I, wanted, I wanted to I know what was out there, and it was a vehicle to, you know, to, to do a lot of other things. And I, I think I saw it as that, as kind of, you know, really investing in future opportunity, um, no matter where that went, um, you know, kind of trying to, um, trying to find that path and, and, and the fact that it was exciting. And then 
There was a competitive component. I was always a pretty competitive kid. So if I was going to do it, I was going to try to do it really well. And, uh, you know, I, I I don't know how much psychoanalysis I was, how <laughs> I, I had going on when I was 13, but there was definitely, uh, you know, I wanted to, you know, I was ambitious. Should I tell the story about the second place? Um, Mercer Island um, track me me? about that yeah I was sixth grade and I I, there was a race and I'd won it my fourth and fifth grade year and everybody grew and hit puberty and I didn't hit puberty until I was like 16 and I I lost and I tore the ribbon up I didn't like it It it's a bad loser (laughs) something to be successful a bad loser Um, I have all right so I have another research story that doesn't match I don't know where you're coming up with all this stuff I've had Sullivan you know Probably I'd do some research on you three years ago, too. Okay. So I heard a story that you were in line to be the valedictorian at Mercer Island High School and almost may have made a conscious effort to not become the valedictorian at Mercer Island High School. Is this – because this doesn't match the same personality. Is this story true? I don't know how true that is. I, I, I know that I reached a point in high school where I didn't want to be in high school anymore. <laughs> and uh, – You'd gotten into Duke. It was time to move on. Yeah, I felt like the the things that I really cared about, you know, were coming to a close, and that wasn't something that was on the top of my list. And, uh, you know, I I, I didn't – I don't don't remember, to be honest with you, but I I know that that – I probably did a lot of stupid stuff that spring before I went off to college. I did. And, uh, you know, filled my time doing other stuff. (laughs) So it's interesting. You, you've mentioned that you don't think it was a fear of failure. I mentioned the idea that there was a quest for greatness. Mm, I would say – you say that? Don't you don't like, like, that. don't like that? I think you have an insatiable quest for knowledge. Okay. Is, it, is, is that where – what, which, which – what drives? Well, you know, I think just when you're doing something you like doing, you want to do it well. And, uh, you know, I'm lucky I've found some things that – that there's been an alignment for me. And, uh, I mean, the same is true of trying to find balance with, you know, your personal life, that, that those things are always difficult to kind of, uh, to figure out. So, um, I, I don't know that I'm introspective enough to, to, uh, put a ribbon around all that. From, let's go to coaching on the floor a little bit. They talk about, old great players and they say well they have a hard time coaching because they experience the game at a different level mm-hmm. I, I would say I watch you and say that your brain and your creativity process works at a different level than most anyone I've been around how are you able to communicate that mm-hmm. in a manner that players even your other coaches can understand well there's a lot of people that know basketball better than I do um I do the, the part of the part of the game. I mentioned the leadership component, and there's a the competitive component. There's a there's kind of a there's a intellectual component and a tactical component that I like. And, and whether you liken it to you know checkers, chess, whatever the case is, I, I think it's one of the things I like about the NBA game because the players, you know, if you were to use the analogy or the metaphor of chess versus checkers, you know chess pieces can do a lot more things on the board and um and that challenges you as a coach to to try to figure out you know how to use those guys and, and how to maximize them and and that 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 to me is is interesting 
Um, I like that. And um, but it's also a really simple game, and you know you can play around with a lot of different things, and you know none of them maybe come ever come into play, and that's to me not a good reason not to think about them. Um, but it's also kind of understanding that there's a simplicity involved um, with the game because, um, you know, sometimes it just ends up to who puts the ball in the basket and you can think you're doing all these neat, tricky things and none of them matter. Um, and and that, that's something ultimately you can bog people down with, with details that, that uh, you know, the – the opportunity cost of that is is people playing, um, you know, with some hesitant, head, res, ret, reticence or hesitation, and um, you're better off people playing free and and confident and attacking. And so, if you can find a way to balance that, you know, I think you're you're helping your players more. And and uh, you know, the guys that work for me have a thirst for the game, and that's important. Um, you know, I'm probably not easy to work for. Um, I do care a lot about the staff and the people that you're in the foxhole with because they're. You know, this isn't a, this is a unique profession. You have to be incredibly committed uh, on a deep level, and there's a toll that it takes. I've been, in, I think it's helped me to have been an assistant for some really good, demanding coaches because you know what that means, and you forget about it sometimes. But um, you know, the guys that, that we have, I think, is a prerequisite or are both loyal, which is probably the most important thing to me, and uh, and really committed and passionate about what they do. You're an interesting mix of demanding, uh, I think, incredibly focused and caring. Like I know for a fact I've received multiple texts from you and things were going on in my life, and you're aware of them. You've taken a moment. Have you always been that way? Boy, Dave, I don't know. That's a tough one. I, I, I mean, I think to the extent that you try to be aware of what's going on around you, that's – probably the best way you know that's how we'd all like to live um but i'm sure i've been wrapped up in my selfish little world way too much and uh sometimes you're not able to see those things that are going on in other people's lives and um that's unfortunate when you when you do have a feel for that hopefully we can um you know do the right thing and and be better people and and try to have some compassion or sensitivity for what other people are going through and uh, you know i probably don't do it as much as i should but every now and then you you know hopefully you get it right the people in your life like you've had these stops along the way and you have these great people that uh, i'm kind of i mean so if we run through them it's coach messina coach collins coach brown kobe bryant i think kyle corver might have been the guy in atlanta i was trying to figure out who who that person was there always seems to be i don't know if this is true that there's an individual from each of your experiences. And for those who don't know Coach Schneider's path, he when he comes, he goes to the Austin Toros, uh, coaches there, then ends up heading, uh, I'm going to get it wrong here, but then he goes, I believe, to L.A., um, L.A. to Moscow, Moscow to Atlanta, and Atlanta to become the Utah Jazz head coach. So there's this path of knowledge that I think you were on, and you found these people. I don't. I almost want to run through each one of them, and find out what you got from them. But how do you? What is the little? What is the connection? Because they seem to be fabulous connections over short periods of time. Well, I, I, you know, anything you're doing, any situation you're in, 
you have the opportunity to connect with people and in, in, in sometimes in very different ways. I mean, I, you, you named a, a lot of people, you know, kind of on this, this path, this basketball path, but, um, I've been really, I mean, it's blessed to, to, um, the people that you mentioned that have, you know, helped me really as much as anything. And you try to be grateful for that, but, uh, you know, that I, I would, go other places to to find there's a lot of other people out there that I'm really fortunate that have shaped me in ways that um that I haven't forgotten you know I don't think anyone's been more blessed to have the friendships that that I've had and some of those friendships have been um illuminated through adversity that um I always remember the, the the amount of people that would come visit me in Missouri versus the amount of people that came to Austin. I've got a short list, but the people that came to visit me in Austin, I, I know who they are. And uh, so I've been I've been really lucky from guys I played with in college, um, you know, that that have kind of been with you through it all, um, to guys I grew up with, some of whom you know and. We don't keep in touch and, you know, life's moved on and others that, you know, th those friendships are, are very real still. Um, so it's, it's you know, beyond Coach Pop and Coach K, there's a guy, John Mack, that I was going to go work for in, you know, in New York. And I remember coming to his office and saying, I don't know if I'm going to finish this internship. I'm going to go try to coach with the Clippers for a year. And he said, well, go do it. And uh, so I just want to make sure I got a job when I'm done with that. <laughs> he said, all right, well, you know, don't screw it up and we'll hire you back. And so uh, there's been a lot of people for me that have been there for me um, through everything. And, uh, you know, Ettore, you know, you spend a year in Russia with somebody, they become a dear friend and, you know, when I was in San Antonio with RC and Pop, those guys, you know, gave me opportunity and, and really gave me confidence at a time where I probably lacked that. Um, you know, obviously Coach K, on a lot of levels, you know, he, he through the most formulative time in my life, um, from the time that I was 17 to 27 when I started working for him, you know, you just, I'm grateful that... Um, been around people like that and you know you mentioned Kyle you know Kyle's fantastic person that you know Damari so both those guys were willing to listen and and taught me a lot and I was able to hopefully teach them some stuff so anytime you have an opportunity to interact with people you know everybody's got something different to share and give and, and hopefully that's a two-way street Close on, close on two parts. One, I wasn't planning on, but you just mentioned a moment ago, Billy Donovan and I were talking about this the other day as well, where Billy Donovan was talking about the adjustment from college to the pro, and he said, college, you, you take these kids, you put them into a system. Yeah. He said, in pro, you've got to find out where this incredible talent is and how to maximize each mm -hmm. individual player's incredible talent more than putting in that manner. Do you see, is that some of what you were talking about a few minutes ago, do you see it similar in how you form the pro game compared to the college game? Well, I mean, when you say college, I'm just glad I'm not coaching in college. I think the college, and I've never even said this, but I, I think it's completely upside down. And uh, the challenges that involve college, to me, have nothing to do with basketball. They're the recruiting component. Um, hopefully you can recruit guys that, you know, to a system, but 
can't always recruit all the guys you want and trying to figure out how to move the system and change that and do that I think prepared me for the NBA in many ways because it's I think it's it's harder in some sense it's and it's easier if you can get all the guys you want you know you're essentially the general manager and the coach um but I don't know how I would answer that question because it's been a long time since I've been in college and um you know, I'm I'm glad that I've got an opportunity to coach in the pros because it just makes more sense to me on so many levels. It's just it's easier to have, you know, the rest of my life make sense to me than than in college when there are just so many variables that are completely outside of your control that have a tremendous impact on um, on your life in so many ways. I was with Coach Sloan for mm-hmm. a few years, which you know, how lucky can you be? thing that struck me the most about him was as great as this was at the i mean he was at his peak right mm-hmm. the end he still talked about being fired by the bulls at least once a week yeah and was still like bothered by it yeah after five thousand wins or whatever right. does is that just a scar that like, as a coach one can never get through you know i, I don't know i can't I, I can't speak for for coach sloan obviously um I think for me, in a lot of ways, I mean, I I resigned um, on February 14th, but I like to say I was fired because, you know, basically what they told me is they got the votes. You're probably going to be out at the end of the year. You can step down now or you can have some sort of, you know, boardroom fight to keep your job. And I didn't really want my job at that point the way it was because it was upside down. And I stepped down because I thought maybe – our team could go on a run and one of my assistants could get the head job and that didn't happen. But, you know, I took time and tried to help the guys that were working for me in, in, in any way I could. But, uh, I was lucky that it, that it happened the way it did because, you know, I think you're, you were in a place for me where, so, you know, people look at it, what a great job, what a cool thing. You're coaching the head coach in Missouri or, you know, you've got this contract. You're doing this. You're you've got some measure of fame and and wealth. And and you know, it didn't make sense to me. It just didn't. It didn't line up with what I wanted and who I was. And I think when that, when, if there's that imbalance, it's not gonna it's not gonna work right. And if it does work, it's not gonna feel right. And uh, so I, for me, you know, that situation really, in hindsight, I would never say you know like. Hey, it was the best thing that happened to me. Like somehow, you know, it was good, but it was formulative. And, you know, it, it you know, the, when one door closes, another opens. It, you got to close the door bef- before you can find another door. And, and for me, that's what happened. And it was painful for, it's painful, you know, the, the, the impact it has on your life in so many ways. Anybody that's had that happen. Um, and more than anything, it's scary. You know, you just don't know what, what next? You know, what are you going to do? And, and uh, you know, you, you're you're stamped as having failed. Um, and there's a lot of there's a lot of reasons things fail, and some of them aren't bad. Some of them make sense. And um, but once you kind of accept that and, and are courageous enough to look at it and say, well, what didn't make sense about this? What did? What did I do to you know to not not even the 
to, to you know to get fired what what did what did I do that I wouldn't do again even if it got me fired <laughs> or didn't get me fired I don't think getting fired was for me the the uh, that wasn't the definitive thing that happened for me it was it was more like what what am I doing what do I like about this what do I not and what about it fits for me and am I good at and what am I not good at or what am I good at that I don't like doing um so it, in, in that sense it just um you know I look at it it was a mirror of sorts and one that sometimes we don't like to look in the mirror and uh, once you do you're you know it's not Dorian Gray you know the the, the mirrors you know there's a an honesty that you have to have I think for me with myself about where where I was and what I was doing and you know what I wanted to change and what I wanted to keep, and and then it, then then it turns into what next. But as, as much as anything, you're you know you're 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 barren. You know you're laid out, and that allows you the opportunity, I think, to to build again. Was I was just chuckling when you said scared because it wasn't as high profile. But when Oklahoma City took over the Sonics and fired me as the <laughs> radio voice, I am not a runner, and I became Forrest Gump that day. I literally got home and ran the you'll know it well the top of the Queen Anne Circle, and I think I did it like eight times because I thought if I kept running, it wouldn't be true. Yeah. <laughs> so I think the scared comment matches. I want to end on this: the most enjoyable thing for you uh, as a head coach is it. That two o'clock in the morning discovery that if you do deny the pass to the post by the opponent, you <laughs> blow up their whole offense and then seeing it come to fruition. Is it the July 15th? Hey, wait a second. If they're switching and I move these two guys in this fashion, then we can get the switch where we want it. Or is it just the development of a Gordon Hayward into the player he is today or the Rudy Gobert or watching Rodney Hood hit a game winner for the first time in his entire career and one of the more insular people busting out with a you know really outward show of emotion. What is it to you at this point that's the peak of enjoyment? Well, I, I don't know. Enjoyment wouldn't that, – that's a hard – I would say the – Change the word. The satisfaction or the kind of the – the um, I, I think when you when you see a team fit together, when you just see um, guys believing in one another, and you know raising each other's level, and when you see a group that's truly functioning as a team, that there's there's one identity, and that somehow these individual egos, including yours as a coach, are all subjugated to a group and that's when I think really really kind of special and memorable things happen with a team um, I remember the, the first time I really felt that was when the U.S. won the goal in hockey and I connected to it as a spectator who didn't really know hockey but it was transforming and those moments and those they're few and far between you kind of strive for them, and they don't necessarily have to be championships. You know, they, they don't have to be, you know, stamped and signed off on as by everyone else as success. Sometimes they're more noticeable that way, and oftentimes when it does happen, it leads to success. But, you know, that's kind of being a part of something that's bigger than you. You get a slice of that when you're part of a group and a team, and it makes you feel really alive.